0: I have often wondered about the proposition that for each of us there is one great love in our lives, and one only. Even if that isn't true, and experience tells most of us it is not, there are those, in legend at least, who believe there is only one person in this world whom they will ever love with all their heart. Tristan, persisted in his love of Isolde in spite of everything, "'Orpheus would not have risked the underworld, one imagines, for anyone but Eurydice. "'Such stories are touching, but the cynic might be forgiven for saying, "'Yes, but what if the person you love doesn't reciprocate? "'What if Isolde had found somebody else she preferred to Tristan, "'or Eurydice had been indifferent to Orpheus?' The wise thing to do in cases of unreturned affection is to look elsewhere. You cannot force another to love you, and to choose somebody else. In matters of the heart, though, as in all human affairs, few of us behave in a sensible way. We can do without love, of course, and claim it doesn't really play a major part in our lives. We may do that, but we still hope. Indifferent to all the evidence, hope has a way of surviving every discouragement, every setback or reversal. Hope sustains us, enables us to believe we will find the person we have wanted all along. Sometimes, of course, that is exactly what happens. This story started when the two people involved were children. It began on a small island in the Caribbean, continued in Scotland and in Australia, and came to a head in Singapore. It took place over 16 years, beginning as one of those intense friendships of childhood and becoming, in time, something quite different. This is the story of that passion. It's a love story. And like most love stories, it involves more than just two people. For every love has within it the echoes of other loves. Our story is often our parents' story, told again, and with less variation than we might like to think. The mistakes, as often as not, are exactly the same mistakes our parents made, as human mistakes so regularly are. The Caribbean island in question is an unusual place. Grand Cayman is still a British territory, by choice of its people rather than by imposition. One of the odd corners that survive from the monstrous shadow that Victoria cast over more than half the world. Today, it is very much in the sphere of American influence— Florida is only a few hundred miles away and the cruise ships that drop anchor off Georgetown usually fly the flag of the United States or our American ships under some other flag of convenience. But the sort of money that the Cayman Islands attract comes from nowhere, has no nationality, no characteristic smell. Grand Cayman is not much to look at either on the map, where it is a pinprick in the expanse of blue to the south of Cuba and the west of Jamaica, or in reality, where it is a coral-reefed island barely twenty miles long and a couple of miles in width. With smallness come some advantages, amongst them a degree of immunity to the hurricanes that roar through the Caribbean each year— Jamaica is a large and tempting target for these winds, and is hit quite regularly. There is no justice in the storms that flatten the houses of the poor in places like Kingston or Port Antonio, wood and tin constructions so much more vulnerable than the bricks and mortar of the better off. Grand Cayman, being relatively minuscule, is usually missed, although every few decades the trajectory of a hurricane takes it straight across the island. Because there are no natural salients, much of the land is inundated by the resultant storm surge. People may lose their every possession to the wind. Cars, fences, furniture and fridges, animals too, can all be swept out to sea and never seen again. Boats end up in trees. Palm trees bend double and are broken with as much ease as one might.